Lesson 34. Hello again. In this lesson, I'm going to explain camera obscura and how a camera works. Did you know that Ansel Adams used to schlep around a big old 8x10 view camera, something like this, when he was shooting his awesome landscapes of the West? It's true. And as if that wasn't daunting enough, he had to schlep around a tripod, too, adding to the weight. And he had to use 8x10 sheet film, one shot per sheet and a holder about this size. Well, what you see here are some of the cameras that I own, and in this lesson I'm going to explain some of the differences between each one, sort of illustrating how the cameras evolved through the years. And then, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to show you how you can make your own pinhole camera, which is a great way to learn about camera obscura and the principles behind how a camera works. Legend has it that around a thousand years ago or so, somebody noticed that an image of the scene outside their house was projected onto the wall of their darkened room as light passed through a small hole in the wall at the opposite side of the room. The image was inverted but accurately represented the shapes and colors of the scene. This ocular principle of physics eventually led to the term camera obscura, which is Latin for darkened chamber or room. Before the principle was developed for photography, the camera obscura was used by artists to trace scenes for paintings. In this illustration I made in Flash, we're going to take a look at what the principle behind the camera obscura looks like and how it evolved into the invention of the camera. Because light travels in a straight line, light reflected off of objects through a small hole cross and reform instead of scattering, forming the outside image on the opposite wall. Now let's make a few changes to the house. If we simply keep the small hole as it is, it serves as a very simple lens, and we've just created a pinhole camera. If we were to add a convex lens over the hole, we'd be able to focus the scene better and be able to open and close the hole easily. Now let's add a piece of light-sensitive material, such as film or photo paper, to the mix and place it flat against the back of the box, and we have a way to record the image so it can be reproduced. We open the lens long enough to expose the film, process the film, and now we have a photograph of the scene. This principle is not only what makes still photography possible, but movies and videos as well. Whether light-sensitive film or image sensors and digital cameras are being used to record the image. Now that we know basically how a camera works, I'll show you some different kinds of cameras and how much they've changed through the years. As you'll notice, all cameras are essentially variations on the same simple theme and design, the camera obscura. I'll begin our discussion of camera types with what are referred to as large format cameras, which refer to the size of the sheet film used in the cameras. Large format sizes start at 4 by 5 inches and go all the way up to 20 by 24 inches. The cameras that use large format film are called view cameras and have been around about as long as photography itself, dating all the way back to early daguerreotypes. There are several types of view cameras, including the monorail, often used in the studio, field cameras, and press cameras. The front of this 4x5 view camera has a lens board that can be removed so the lenses of varying focal lengths can be attached. The lens board is mounted on standards that allow it to be moved in a variety of ways. This accordion-like structure is called the bellows, which enables the focal distance between the lens and the film plane to be adjusted without allowing light in. The bellows also allows the mobility necessary for the rises, falls, shifts, swings, and tilts of the lens board and the film back. Note that the lens board, tripod mount, and film back are all attached to a monorail, which allows all three of these components to slide forward and backward along the monorail as needed. At the rear of the camera is the film back, which is comprised of a ground glass focusing screen and a slot where the film pack can be inserted. 
The horizontal or vertical format can be changed by simply rotating the ground glass. The image being viewed appears on the ground glass upside down, just as we saw in the camera obscura diagram. It's pretty difficult to see the scene on the ground glass if there's a lot of ambient light, which is why you often see photographers with a black cloth draped over their heads as they're focusing one of these cameras in the light. The scene is also viewed on the ground glass at a distance. In other words, you look directly at the ground glass to see it, not peer through it. In order to view a scene in the ground glass, you have to open up the aperture of the lens by sliding the open-close lever. Because the image tends to be dim on the ground glass, it's best to open the aperture to its widest setting to allow the maximum amount of light in. After you've composed your shot and you're ready to shoot, you'll close the lens again and then stop the aperture down to the proper setting. When composing the shot, the vertical perspective can be adjusted by raising and lowering the lens board on the front standard as seen here. The horizontal perspective can also be adjusted by shifting the standard to the left or right. Depth of field can be increased by swinging the lens to the left or right depending on the direction the subject is oriented in the scene. And in addition to all these movements, the lens can even be tilted forward or backward to correct for image distortion. This is particularly important in landscape photography. I'll wrap up this presentation by showing you how large format sheet film is loaded into a film pack to be used for a view camera. You begin by going into a totally dark room with a film holder and a box of sheet film in a light tight box. After sliding out a dark slide, you open a flap of the holder, then take a piece of sheet film and grope around until you can feel the notch in it. This notch enables you to determine which side of the film is the emulsion side, which must be loaded facing the lens. By holding the notch in the upper right hand corner, you know the emulsion side is up and then you slide the film into the holder and close the dark slide. This operation is then repeated on the other side of the film pack so that you have two sheets of film per holder. Finally, you load the film holder into the camera back by opening the hinged compartment and sliding it in. Before shooting, you remove the dark slide so the film is ready for exposure. Assuming that you've already composed your scene, closed the aperture, adjusted your aperture and shutter speed, and cocked the shutter, you snap the picture and then replace the dark slide. Then you repeat the procedure by turning the film holder around so that the second sheet of film faces the lens. This is a great way to illustrate how film is placed into the exact same position where the image was projected on the ground glass, just as we saw in the camera obscura presentation. So by now, you've probably gotten a pretty good idea of how involved using a view camera can be. In all honesty, there is a certain learning curve to using one properly, but the results are worth all of the effort. Not only does learning how to use a view camera help you understand how a camera works and how much control you can have over the subject being photographed, but it teaches you how important it is to try to get everything just right before snapping the shutter. The next type of camera we're going to discuss is the medium format camera. Instead of sheet film, medium format cameras use film manufactured in rolls, allowing the photographer to save time between shots since the film doesn't have to be loaded one shot at a time. In 1888, George Eastman invented roll film and the handheld camera that used the film. For the first time in its 50-year history, photography was suddenly available to anyone who could afford a camera loaded with enough film to take 100 exposures, then send it back to Kodak for processing. In 1900, Eastman Kodak invented the Brownie camera, which cost only $1 and allowed anyone to take their own snapshots at will. These inventions revolutionized photography, and Kodak's Brownie camera eventually evolved into the cameras that use medium format 120 size film today. 
Medium format got its name from the fact that the film is smaller than 4x5-inch sheet film and larger than 35mm small format film. The advantage of medium format is that the negative has more resolution than 35mm, allowing for sharper images. The three kinds of medium format cameras seen here are the twin lens reflex, the single lens reflex, and the point and shoot. Now is probably a good time to explain the concept of what you see is what you get as it refers to cameras. The view cameras we just looked at are considered what you see is what you get because the image you see on the negative will be the exact same image you viewed in the ground glass with regard to cropping, composition, focus, and so on. Not all cameras, however, give you what you see in the viewfinder. Some cameras don't enable you to look directly through the lens of the scene being photographed, so what you're seeing in the viewfinder will vary from the recorded image. One example of this is the point-and-shoot camera. The early roll film cameras had a viewfinder that was little more than a hole that approximated the actual scene that was being recorded on film. They also had a fixed focus lens, which was focused at infinity, so close-ups were often out of focus, although you'd never know it by looking through the viewfinder. What you see here is a medium format point-and-shoot camera called the Holga. This camera is the epitome of cheap with regard to construction, function, and features. Yet Holgas are pretty popular today because some photographers like its quirky nature and the sort of randomness of it all. Others like them because of the theory that if a shot is that great in the first place, it makes no difference how great the camera is that records the image. This $30 piece of plastic features a virtually fixed focus lens that supposedly can be focused, but really can't. As you look at the icons on lens, they represent varying degrees of proximity to your subject as you rotate the lens. But you might as well not touch it for all intents and purposes. It has a simple shutter release button and a fixed shutter speed of around 1 90th of a second. The good news is that shooting multiple exposures is a breeze on this camera since you can click several times on the same frame before advancing the film to the next frame. I have my students shoot with Holgas mainly for that reason. The film frame counter is comprised of this little transparent red window which allows you to see what frame you're on. A peek into the inside of this thing helps explain why it's so cheap with its single spring shutter and unsophisticated film transport system. Loading the film consists of working the film into the left compartment, then bringing the leader over and attaching it to the take-up reel. Once the leader is secure in the slot, you advance the roll a couple of turns, then replace the back. It's always a good idea to tape the back since they're famous for falling off at any given time. Once you've got the back on securely, rotate the film advance knob until you reach the first frame. Now you're ready to go. In spite of its cheapness, the Holga actually takes a pretty decent shot and it's really fun and easy to use. I personally like it because it reminds me a little bit of my very first camera I had as a kid, which was a Kodak Hawkeye. This is what's known as a twin lens reflex camera, a medium format camera that became popular in the late 20s. The reason it's called a TLR, or twin lens reflex camera, as opposed to an SLR, or single lens reflex camera, is that this camera contains two lenses. The lens on the top is used for viewing the scene, just as you would in an SLR, while the other lens actually takes the picture. The TLR is sort of a compromise between a point-and-shoot and an SLR. Another feature of the TLR is the waist-level viewfinder, which allows you to shoot below eye level, giving you a better perspective when shooting straight on shots. You can also view at eye level with a retractable magnifier that also helps to fine focus your subjects. There are some distinct advantages to the TLR over the SLR, including the fact that the scene can actually be viewed during exposure because of the twin lens design, as opposed to seeing black during exposure. 
Although the viewing lens uses a mirror to reflect the image into the viewfinder, just like an SLR, the bottom lens is what's known as a leaf shutter lens, which doesn't have a mirror that pops out of the way during exposure. The leaf shutter also allows faster shutter speeds that sync with flash than most SLRs. Speaking of SLRs, here's a medium format SLR. These cameras have all the advantages of a 35mm SLR, but the added advantage of a larger image size. It's interesting to note that a lot of professional photographers are converting their medium format film cameras to digital by adding digital backs to them. A digital version of this camera may well be considered the ultimate still photography camera, having not only higher resolution images than conventional DSLRs, but also the convenience and versatility of digital photography. The downside is the price. It can easily cost over $20,000 to make the move to a digital medium format camera. I'm going to wrap up our discussion with small format cameras, more specifically the 35mm camera. Most of you are probably familiar with this camera, a 35mm SLR. Perhaps the most popular camera ever made, this workhorse has been around since the mid-30s, enabling photographers to take beautiful images on a device that's easy to carry and loaded with features. The 35mm manual SLR eventually gave way to this, a fully automatic SLR. What you're looking at is the precursor to the digital SLR, with autofocus, auto exposure capability, and a mode dial quite similar to its newer incarnation. Digital photography has not only revolutionized the way we take pictures, but has had a direct influence on how many of us take pictures on a regular basis. With the ease of use, affordability, and the fact that virtually every cell phone has a built-in digital camera, a lot of us have become photographers simply by default. This is of course a great thing. But the next time you snap a shot with your phone or your DSLR, think back to these old film cameras and remember that digital isn't all there is to the story. And remember that anyone can take a picture. But how many of us can take a great picture is yet another story unto itself. Before I show you how to make your very own pinhole camera, I'd like to know your thoughts about film versus digital photography. Some of you no doubt have used film in the past and shoot digitally now. My question to you is this. Do you see the end of film altogether or do you think it will be around say 50 years from now? Also, how many of you, and this means all of you, wish you had access to a dark room so you could develop and print your own black and white photos? And if this sounds like something you'd be interested in, how many of you would like to see a lesson or two on how to make your own dark room and how to develop and print black and white? A dark room's a lot easier to make than you'd think. I'd love to hear from any of you who have comments on any of these topics, so please post your comments either on the Photography 101 Facebook page or email them to me. Thanks for your input. Alright, so what do you need to make a pinhole camera? Well, you're going to need a box, one that you can get uh, totally black inside. You're going to need a needle to cut your pinhole. You're going to need some kind of uh, photosensitive uh, receptor like film or photographic paper. You're going to need a pop can, aluminum, thin aluminum, aluminum uh, scissors, electrical tape, ruler, exacto knife, and a pencil. Okay? Now when you pick your box, that is obviously the most important thing, you have to think of a few things. When you pick your box, are you going to be able to seal it and make it totally dark inside? Okay? I have chosen a film box, so I know that there's a good chance of this working out alright. This is for 4x5 sheet film. Okay? It opens up, and it is sealable. Alright? 
if I had any leaks, I could put some black tape around there. Okay, so that's the first step. All right, next thing you want to do is find the center of where you want to cut your for your pinhole, which is your simple lens, uh, of one side of the camera. Okay, one thing I want to mention again on the uh, box that you choose, this box is really thin. This means it's going to be a very wide angle because the distance from the pinhole to where the film will be is very short. Okay, if I went with a fatter box, like say this old uh, iPod box, okay, then I would have a thicker focal distance from the pinhole to where the film would be. All right. Okay, so we're going to take our box because I want the uh, wide angle view and I'm going to find my midpoint. Put this stuff off to the side for now. I'll take my ruler and as you well know that if you dry, uh, draw two diagonal lines from corner to corner of any rectangle or square you're going to find a midpoint. Okay, so right there and put this right here. Make an X. There's my center. Okay. I want to make an opening, probably about an inch opening, keeping in mind that when I put the aluminum foil um, over this, it will be larger. So I'm going to guesstimate this, think about, oh, about like this. This doesn't have to be perfect. It's not rocket science, okay? As long as you can cover it with aluminum foil and it will allow light to pass through. Now I'll get my X-Acto knife. I'll do all this pretty quickly. Uh, to save time because we've got a lot to cover in this podcast. Alright, so I'm cutting out a square of this with my X-Acto knife. Okay, at the end there. Make this a little cleaner. Right there, and again, don't cut yourself doing this, just like I almost did just then. <laughs> Alright. Exacto knife in there. Give me rough edges like that. Clean them up. Okay, that's good enough. Um, you may want to be sure that these are a little cleaner than this, though. The cardboard can actually interfere with your image if it's too close to the center. Okay, now I've got my rectangle here, a hole. I'm going to take my pop can. It's going to get a little noisy here, so bear with me. All I want is a little bit of aluminum. big enough to make a square or rectangle piece. Alright, that out of the way. Okay, I can do better than this. Clean it up a little bit just because it looks better, right? It'll be easier to tape too. Alright, notice that this aluminum foil or aluminum pop can material is bigger than the hole and that's important. Okay, because I'm going to tape this over the hole after I make my pinhole. So the pinhole. I'm going to get a surface that will allow my pin to go through it. Actually, it's a needle. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Why am I using a needle instead of a pin? Well, because I can get a small needle. The smaller diameter of my needle, the smaller my hole uh, for my pinhole. And therefore, the aperture will be smaller very small as a matter of fact and we know that the smaller the aperture the sharper the picture right okay so the trade-off is going to be my exposures will be kind of long so I like to use a smaller hole 
you can always make the hole bigger if you don't like what you're getting in results. Okay, so I'm going to find roughly the center of this. I'm going to take something so this doesn't go through my finger. I've got the needle here. Push this through just enough to pop it through. Okay, there you go. I don't know if you can see that. Bring it up here. Okay, see that? Little pinhole. Get my box. Again, you could center this with finding the diagonals and so forth. I'm going to eyeball it. Um, what's fun about this is you have no idea how it's going to turn out. Obviously, you want to cover all the bases you can, though, to increase your odds. But uh, trial and error is the key to all this stuff, to tell you the truth. I know one thing. If I get a pinhole and I get a photosensitive piece of material in there, and that photosensitive material doesn't have any light leaks, I should get an image. And that's the key. Okay, so first I'm going to put a piece of electrical tape right there. Obviously, don't cover your pinhole. More tape. Over here. I have my uh, entire classes make pinholes pinhole cameras and they design them themselves and you should see the uh, variety of boxes we get in there. We've had everything from oatmeal boxes which is kind of cool because it's cylindrical and will give you distortion to uh, match boxes which are very tiny. Uh, we've had big boxes like shoe boxes and size, like I said before, uh, the difference in your size is really your focal distance, your distance from the pinhole to wherever your photosensitive receptor is. The greater that area is, the distance from your pinhole to where your film is going to be, or your paper, the more sort of telephoto your image is. It'll zoom in, basically. When you get a narrow focal distance like this is going to be, you get a more wide angle picture and you get a crisper picture just like a camera, just like a camera lens. It's sort of the same deal. Alright, all right. so I'm going to wrap this up here. Okay, I've got my pinhole in the center. Now, if I wanted to check this out, I would look through this pinhole. I'll try that here and see if you can, it's probably not going to work. But you would look through your pinhole towards a light source and you will see the scene, you will actually see a scene through that little pinhole. So you want to check and be sure that your pinhole goes all the way through the aluminum and that you're seeing uh, through it. It's amazing. You're going to see a lot more than you think, too. If I was staring at the ceiling of a room, I'd see the whole room through here, probably. Bring right up to my eyeball. Okay, but anyway, so be sure to test that out. What have I got now? I've got a box in the back part. Okay, it's already black. Uh, that was another thing too, if you use a box and it happens to be white or some color, be sure to just spray paint it. Make it all dark because light reflects off of light sur surfaces. You want your light to just stop dead so that your image will go through this pinhole to your receptor. Alright? Alright, the final step would be to get your photosensitive material. Now, do you think you would load this in the broad daylight? No, you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. You would load this in a totally darkened room. Alright? This is 4x5 sheet film. We're going to see this a little bit later in our view camera, a little more in detail. 4x5 inches, this is the emulsion side, this is where all the silver is. This is what's called the base side. You always want to put the emulsion side out against uh, 
toward the area where the image is going to come through. So I would put this in here, like this. Now this isn't fitting perfectly, so what would you do? You could double up a little bit of tape, put it back there. I'm not going to do that now, I don't have my masking tape. Um, find a way to tape this in here so it doesn't go all over the place. Uh, I'll just go ahead and use electrical tape. No sense in copping out, right? Now you could do this number. This is probably the best thing. Alright, just kind of twirl it around like that, make a complete circle. Center. That's not going anywhere, which is cool. Alright. Remember, total darkness. You just have to feel around. Next thing you would do is take the other side of the box, close it, and I would probably seal this just to be sure that there's no light leaks through this seam here. Alright, so we'll go ahead and do that just to wrap it up. While I'm doing this, we've got to talk about film and paper. Oh, as a matter of fact, I didn't talk about the paper, so let's go back to that. What if you use photographic paper? There's problems involved with all of this, okay? First of all, a lot of people don't use film, they don't have dark rooms and so forth, so that's going to be the catch of this. I'm really doing this for the people that really, really want to pursue it, pursue it and see what I can come up with. There are labs that develop all this. You can make your own little dark room. We could talk about that later in future podcasts. But to make a long story short, if you were to use film, uh, you would have to process the film in a t uh, tank, and it's pretty problematic. Whereas if you were to use photographic paper, then you would just need the three chemicals in a dark room, and you could process this. All right, so that is the problem with this. You have to have something photosensitive. You have to use chemicals to process it. Okay, sorry about that. That's the way it is. Even if you don't even try this, at least you can get an idea of how a camera works. That's what's so beautiful about this and how simple it is. Okay, so let's just say I don't use photographic paper, but that's what I would do is put the photographic paper in there, which has an emulsion side too where the silver is. It's usually glossier than the paper side. Okay, same thing you do there. All right, back to that. Close this up. Start taping it up. And what you could do, if you think there's a chance there are any light leaks on this, you wouldn't even have to tape this up. This one's iffy. All right, so I'm not gonna take any chances and tape it up. And we'll do this really quick. We're trying to get this done quickly. All right. While I'm doing this, what would you do next? Remember, you're in a darkened room. All right. So. As we speak, if we were in a light room like we are now, the light would be traveling through this pinhole and ruining our picture, wouldn't it? Okay, so we're assuming you're still in a totally darkened room. Okay, I got things a little ahead of myself, but that's okay, you got the idea. When you're ready to shoot and put your finger over it, then you come out in the light room, go outside, find a place where you can keep your camera flat on the ground, Sometimes I'll take a weight of some kind, all right, to balance it, stabilize it, something like this maybe. Have your scene out there, your person, when you're ready to take the shot, okay? Take your finger away like this. We got maybe 15 seconds. Have your watch there, yourself, whatever, and then after 15 seconds, cover this back up. You've now made a 15-second exposure at whatever that aperture was. So you would keep your finger over this because no light can get to it any longer. Go into your dark room, process your paper or your film, 
and see what you got. That, my friends, is how easy it is to make a pinhole camera. A couple of side notes on pinholes. You can use color sheet film if you don't want to use black and white and let a photo lab develop them for you. I took this shot with a camera similar to the one I just showed you how to make by laying the camera flat on the ground pointed up toward the trees. Note the distortion from the extreme wide angle. Hard to believe this image came from a homemade camera, eh? Keep in mind the same rules for exposure apply to pinholes, but you'll have to do some guessing. Your finger is acting as the shutter, and the speed's going to be long, since the aperture of a pinhole is so small. It's a good idea to bracket your exposures by 10 or 15 seconds until you get it right. For all of you Photography 101 app owners, there's a new feature that's just been added called Episode Links, which you'll find in each episode's Extras section. Here you'll find helpful links that are relevant to a particular lesson, such as where to download or buy stuff, find examples of images, and so on. Be sure to check that out. And finally, please take a moment to post your comments about this podcast, either on iTunes or at the App Store. I'd greatly appreciate it. Well, that's about it for now. I hope you've learned something new in this lesson. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.